podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and who love history and food and all things sort of making. Um, And we like to start by talking about the things that we have been making and or baking recently before we got onto the main topic. So what have you been up to? I've made my annual parkin. Oh yes, it is the season. Making my annual trip to the health food shop to get the right kind of oats. What kind of oats do you use? Uh, steel cut. Mm-hmm. Parkin uh, is like a gingerbread, right? But not a biscuity gingerbread. Yeah, it's like a ginger loaf. Mm-hmm. And the one that I make has treacle and golden syrup and brown sugar in it. So, like, I did give money to Holland and Barrett, which I do not like. Oh, are they bad? I mean, I just find the whole concept of health food shops exploitative. Okay. Um, The fact that they have the the teas that give you diarrhoea right by the till. Oh, no. (laughs) I've not said Holland and Barrett in some time. Well, I I just have my annual sure. trip to get the right kind of oats. <laughs> but, you know, I am then covering them in three kinds of sugar. So it's fine. <laughs> Barely even counts as health food at that point. So that's been aging in the kitchen. You have to age it? It's nicer if you leave it a week or two. Because the, the flavours develop and it gets this like layer of sticky on top and it starts mm. to smell of rum. <laughs> I love parkin. Sounds good. Should do a local larder on it at some point. Yeah. I'm surprised we haven't. We're, we're a little bit past the time for it now because it's, it's traditional at bonfire night. But maybe. Oh, yeah, I guess maybe. It's delicious all the time. Yeah, all year round, baby. Um, also, very excitingly, I had someone come round and teach me the basics of null bending. Of what now? Null bending. Oh! <laughs> Sorry, I didn't recognise the word for a sec. <laughs> I am very tired, just for the records. So I'm <laughs> sorry for any humorous misspeaking spoken words today null bending yeah that's impressive I still can't do it (laughs) well I I had tried so many times and it was essentially (laughs) I am going to need someone to come and physically show me because books aren't working videos aren't working nothing is helping um so I had someone who I uh met on the Welsh Vikings Patreon server actually, um, who happens to live nearby. She very nicely came round and taught me and left me a bone needle. Oh amazing. I'm still not very good at it, but I'm better than I was in that <laughs> I can actually do a stitch. Sweet. Are you planning to make any things with it? 
I was thinking of trying to make just something really simple, like some wrist warmers or something, just to practice. Sounds like a good idea. So I'll probably do that soon, or at least attempt to. Um, I'm trying to be optimistic, but also new crafts can be hard. <laughs> I think you can do it. So what's this space? <laughs> what have you been up to? Uh, couple things. So I made a birthday cake for my dad. <laughs> um, that's kind of the only <laughs> baking I've done recently. Um, it was a caramel cake. Oh, which was it? It basically is like a dense uh, sponge mix, but with light brown sugar instead of caster, um, which is simple but delicious. And then uh, I put, um, I made it in like sandwich tins, and then put strawberries in the middle, and then icing and strawberries on top because we're not a big buttercream family. I mean, that does sound really good. It was good. Yeah. It was it was delicious. It went very well with the strawberry taste. But you have to, it means you have to eat it relatively quickly oh, before no. the strawberries, like, go weird. Which is terrible. Exactly. I know. I mean, <laughs> whatever should we do? Um... And I started a new jumper, um, knitting a new jumper, which is exciting for me because uh, it is both my first ever colour work project. Um, cool. Well, I've done one before that I didn't finish, so I've done a little bit of colour before, but um, this one is a colour work jumper in four ply which is a finer weight of yarn than is usually used for jumpers um, yeah that's like sock weight right yeah so it's gonna, it's gonna take a while but it's real nice and um, the last i've only ever made one jumper which is weird for someone who's been knitting for so long um but well, i only ever made that's genuinely surprising yeah, considering you've made about like two hundred <laughs> in the same amount of time, <laughs> um, and and they're all great. But um, yeah, I've only made one, and it was like ten years ago, <laughs> so it's about time. Um, I made something that wasn't a shawl. Uh, so yeah, it's it's going great. Um, uh, it is. I'm going to send you a picture. Um. And I might pop some of my progress on the. Wait, didn't didn't Twitter. you make one with your your handspun? Did I? Oh, I made a I made a little vest. Oh, okay. Um, That's yeah, I don't I don't know whether that counts. Anyway, yeah, I did I did do that, and that was cool. Um, but this oh, is the one. That's a good jumper. I'm excited to see it. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? It's so the picture that it's got lunar phases down the arms and across the chest. Yes. And lots and lots of very complicated looking designer <laughs> all over it. Um yeah, it I don't know why I thought this would be a good idea as like a beginner in in colour work, but yeah, it's it's blue and gold and it's got moons on it. And I'm very excited about that. If 
you, if anyone listening is an avid knitter, you will likely have seen this before because it um, got shared around a lot a few years ago, I think. I don't know. I came late to the party, but I, it, I've been wanting to do it for a while, so I'm happy about that. You say it's a complicated one for your first colour work, and it absolutely is. But I am a great advocate for jumping in at the deep end with both feet on a new craft. The second thing I ever knitted was a cable knit jumper. (laughs) (laughs) You learn a lot of skills very quickly. (laughs) Exactly. And I feel like after this, nothing is going to be daunting. You will Um, be a colour work expert. (laughs) I wouldn't quite go that far. But yeah, I'm learning lots of new techniques. Um, So, yeah. It is good. Uh, Now then, I did say I was going to do this episode on a book that we mentioned. I can't remember which episode it was. It might have been Rhubarb called Annals of the Caliph's Kitchens. Um, But I don't have that book yet. And I do have the White Heart Inn cookbook, so we're going to do that <laughs> instead. Um, so this cookbook was published in 1759. So, so we're going back a fair way for this one then? We are! <laughs> Um, and it was pub- it was written by William or Will Verrill, who at this time was the landlord of the White Hart Inn in Lewis, which is in the county of Sussex in England. And conveniently, <laughs> that is very close to me. So the White Hart Inn is still there. Um, and I haven't been there because it's now a hotel, but I've been past it many times. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I was looking it up um, for this podcast, uh, and it's got really bad reviews on TripAdvisor. <laughs> so I don't know how much longer it's going to be a hotel. I mean, there are some very big hotels belonging to chains that have terrible reviews on TripAdvisor. That's true. But I guess they can afford to still keep them open. <laughs> but the building is still there, and it has been some form of hostelry since the very early 18th century, which is a long time for a pub to continuously be trading. That's impressive. Yeah. Um... So the town of Lewis is very well preserved, I think you would say. There's there's lots of old houses and buildings. Um, and the White Hart um, was a very influential pub um, in and sometimes hotel in the area. Um, it originally was a a grand house kind of like a mansion belonging to the dukes of newcastle uh, which is very far away from lewis 
So he is. Not sure what the deal is with that, but um, but yeah. So um, it was originally a house, um, but it became a pub in um, apparently 1717, and it was run by a guy called Dick Verrill, who was the father of William Verrill, who wrote our cookbook. I love that we know all of these names. Yes. Very happy. Uh, I mean, I can, uh, thanks to pubwiki.co.uk, I can tell you pretty much every proprietor of this pub since William Verrill, if you wanted to know. I, I am going to link to that website in the show notes. <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you because there's a lot of them and it's very boring. Um, but yeah, so Dick Farrell remodeled it into this um, very well-appointed uh, inn called the White Hart. Um, a hart, if uh, anyone doesn't know, is a male deer. Do I have that right? Yeah. But not what I don't know the difference between a hart and a stag though. Anyway, it's a deer. <laughs> know this. Please tell us if you know the difference. I think it's specifically a red deer, like a okay. male red deer. Ah. Oh, what, a stag? No, a hind. And then a stag is just generally a male deer. Okay. Uh -huh. Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> anyway, the White Hearts. Um, the the newly remodelled White Hart um, was quite a fancy pub by these standards. Um, it was quite a large one. Um, well, it still is quite quite a large one. And so they had a bar, they had a parlour, they had a their kitchens, they had a buttery and a brew house and stables. <laughs> and then they had an upstairs as well, which had a club room used by the Dukes of Newcastle, mm -hmm. and also a great room that also had a balcony, a billiards room, and then they had guest accommodation, so three fancy bedrooms and a cheaper dormitory. Am I right in imagining the great room as like an 18th century function room? Pretty much, I think, yeah, like people could have dances there or like your society meetings or things like that. There's just room for miss. Yeah. Because I realise some of our listeners are probably not British and might not know what a function room is because I don't know how widespread the term is. A function room is a room for functions. If you wish to have a function, you book the room. <laughs> Good explanation. <laughs> so it was a pretty, um, pretty well-set-up business. And the Verrills also owned and operated a coffee house across the street, actually. So they were there were a lot of Verrills in the area, mm -hmm. uh, or Verrills is. Um, so this is the kind of background that Will Verrill was raised in. And he was sent off to train in the kitchens of the Duke of Newcastle. Swanky. Swanky indeed, because the Duke of Newcastle had a fancy French head chef called Monsieur de Saint-Cloué. 
who Will Verrill studied under. And so he learned to cook and then he came back to run the White Hart Inn. Um, and incidentally, Monsieur de Saint-Cloué uh, returned to France to cook for Cardinal Richelieu's nephew. Oh. Which William Verrill does not stop name-dropping in this book. Um, so, yeah, he takes over the running of the White Hart in 1737. And he immediately changes the menus and starts to cook in the French way. Oh. Fancy, indeed. <laughs> so um, he, he started to cook in the French way that he'd been taught. And he made quite a name for himself and for the inn as a reputation of a place that served good food. So the inn became very prosperous, um, for both for Will, Will Ferrell's cooking, Ferrell's cooking, and not also Will Ferrell. not Will Ferrell. <laughs> Different guys. <laughs> And um, um, but also it did very well because this was the era of the stagecoach. Oh, so, yes, yeah. So I'm going to go off on a very short tangent now, just to give a bit more background to the the, the time that this book is appearing in. We will definitely um, do a stagecoach episode as well. Yes, this point though. Yeah, it definitely merits its own episode, like as a concept. But in a nutshell, um, the stagecoach is the quickest way of like getting a bunch of people from place to place at this time. Um, and it was kind of relatively new, really, at least in any kind of speed. Um, so stagecoach is a coach and horses that travels in stages. Um, so of around uh, about 10, 15 miles. And the so that meant they were able to go quite fast because they would go really fast for 10 to 15 miles and then stop at a an inn or a staging post, change the horses. And while they're doing that, the passengers can grab a drink or grab some food or um, if they're stopping for the night, they can stay at the inn. So they were able to travel relatively fast for the time period. Like, for example, in 1754, you could get between Manchester and London in four and a half days by stagecoach. That's pretty quick. Yeah, which is <laughs> just wild to think about, considering it takes two hours on the train today. Um, but this was really quick at the time. Um, uh, I mean, to be fair, I've taken a modern day coach between London and Manchester, and it, I wouldn't say it's my favourite way to travel. Sheffield to London, which is pretty similar, and yeah, it's a long time basically confined because you can't really get up and walk around a coach. No, and I hate coach travel so much, <laughs> but it's the cheapest. <laughs> I cannot imagine doing it for days. 
Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Coach Travel um, presumably was a bit not quite so confined because you would get to stop and get out frequently. Um, but it would take you a long time and you ran the risk of being robbed by a highwayman or having a coach accident. However, because they are stopping at a lot of inns, the inns along the way... You can get absolutely hammered on the way. <laughs> yes. I'm sure that's what a lot of people did. <laughs> Nothing else to do. It's like a pub crawl. <laughs> yeah. Um, so because there are a lot... The inns that were on the, the coaching route did very good business as a result of this because you've essentially got fresh customers um, coming to you directly to your door uh, a few times a day. Um, and so they would, the White Heart uh, would provide food, drink and accommodation for people on the stagecoach route. Um, as well as uh, William Beryl's other side business, which was doing catering for well-to-do people in the area. So he would go and take over their kitchens for whatever, you know, if they, if they had a company coming over, they might call, call in Will Beryl um, to take over their kitchen for the day. I didn't know catering was such an old concept. Um, apparently so. If if you need like a little something extra, um, get the guy who does good food at the inn. I guess it makes sense. It just you assume whether in a time when everyone has chefs that they would just have their chefs do it. Well, they had cooks, a lot of them, but these are people who I weren't really on the level to have a chef who was usually a man at this time um but they would have cooks so it's the the fancy french cooking that they're after rather than the the usual kind of things that their cook would make for them yeah um so in the preface to his sense. book of recipes or receipts. Uh, he describes some of the things he does on his catering jobs. Um, and I, I just, I kind of love the way he writes as well. So this is from the beginning of the introduction. From a presumption of some small success from my friends, I venture to publish the following treatise. To pretend to write for fame would ill become a person in my sphere of life, who am no more than what is vulgarly, vulgarly called a poor publican. Would be an unparalleled piece of imprudence and wholly incompatible to reason and the nature of things. It will be sufficient for me that it meets with the approbation amongst my friends and acquaintances, as may justify me for the pains I have taken to collect them together. The chief end and design of this part of my little volume is to show both to the experienced and unexperienced in the business the whole and simple art of the most modern and best French cookery. To lay down... Uh, yeah, it's... <laughs> this feels like a humble brag. 
like you know i don't i don't want any sort of fame or praise i just want to show you that i make the best and most like food. a lot of this introduction is just kind of him complaining about when he goes to cook in other people's houses and they've only got one frying pan or like the cook doesn't know how to like properly fillet a chicken um and of course he can do things much better over at his kitchen in the white hut um yeah so he he goes over to do to cater a party for this guy and he um introduces himself to the cook and is like all right where's where's all your cooking stuff and she goes oh la sir we've only got that one saucepan <laughs> and he's like aghast and he he sends back to the white heart inn to have his pots and pans brought over um <laughs> i don't know i don't know it's like <laughs> it's very 18th century um I doubt this story. So it's it's all very much like, oh, well, this is a shambles. Luckily, I'm here. Um, and they all said it was the best dinner they ever ate. And will you do it again for us this evening? <laughs> um, yeah, and he kind of sort of gently makes fun at English food a bit as well. It's like, you don't, don't need to boil things for that long. Trust me, I know French cookery. Which... I mean, to be fair, people were boiling things for a long time. Yeah, he probably wasn't wrong in that particular instance. Yeah, I mean, by all accounts, he was actually a good cook. Not um, just his own account. <laughs> well, his business was successful. Um, <laughs> and a lot of the things in the book do sound very delicious, to be fair. Um, he name-drops Monsieur Clouet all the time of course he does don't you know i studied under the french <laughs> my patron lady catherine de Beau. <laughs> but i mean that's part of his marketing so i won't True. hold it against him too much i mean i would a little bit <laughs> <laughs> um but he does he does make the points which again i think uh like a lot of people talk about in modern like celebrity chef days of like you just need good ingredients you know as, as fresh from the garden as you can get them um you need some some good meat and some decent utensils and you know then you'll be able to make some real good food um and he he do, yeah so when he's complaining about um people boiling things for too long um, he's he's saying, um, oh, you'll if you do that, you're ruining this meat that thousands of families would leap at the chance to get. So don't don't ruin the good stuff. I mean, he is right about that. Boiling meat is the worst way to cook it. It's just, it's awful. Well, he still says you can boil it, but no longer than the meat is thoroughly boiled to eat. <laughs> it was the fashion. It was. Boiled meat is just, it's bad. Uh, so, the cookbook starts off with soups and broth. Ah, boiling. Yes, a lot of boiling and potages, mm -hmm. or potages, 
Um, there's a recipe here for potage à la reine. What queen I know not. Um, what is in the queen's potage? <laughs> so it's he starts by telling you to make a stock. Okay. And stir in the white part of a roasted fowl or chicken. Fowl or chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, you add some sweet almonds and egg yolks or mashed hard-boiled eggs, um, a little bit of breadcrumb, and that's, yeah, that, that's kind of it, which is kind of a thick soup, I guess. It doesn't sound terrible, but it doesn't sound no. great. I mean, I guess it's got a lot of kind of rich things in it. So maybe that's why it's called the Queen's Possage. Um, he does also include a recipe recipe for peas pottage, which is a very, very old old dish um, and a peasant dish. Except he calls it potage à la purée verte. Naturally. Because everything's fancier in French. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the same thing. But what I thought was interesting about this recipe is he tells you how to make it in both summer and winter. Oh, because different things are available. Exactly. Um, so he, he tells you how to make it um, with fresh peas. And he also says for the winter season, make use of blue peas, which are always to be had in London. And you can make it green using spinach juice. Making fake fresh peas. Essentially, yeah. So <laughs> you can, because I, if you've ever used boiled peas, um, I know you don't eat them, Liz, but um, they are not the greenest. They're a bit sludgy looking. Mm. Uh, so yeah, use a bit of ye old natural food colouring to make it look fresh and appealing. We've got our soups. We've got our fish courses. Which, amusingly, he says, fish being the second first course dish takes its place next. Uh, Mr. Cluet never boiled any fish of any sort in the plain way. And as almost everybody knows the easy method of dressing them so and their proper sauces, it's probably needless to put it down here. So one of those things that everyone just knows. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so he's only giving a few really fancy fish dishes, um, but he also mentions these are the recipes for the removes, and I had to look up what a remove is, and it turns out that in pre-Russian service dining, a remove is um, a dish that is like replaced so all all the dishes of one course will be put on the table together mm-hmm. and then a couple of them get removed and replaced with something else and that's the remove dish interesting apparently so apparently fish is good for that i guess you don't want fish sitting out too long even if it has been cooked yeah that's true uh, so we've got turbot in the Italian way. Um, 
including Rhenish wine, some lemons, a little pepper and salt. So this which, I can get behind. Yeah, sounds quite nice, actually. Um, so we've got a nice sauce, a nice marinade. Uh, we've got salmon or crevette, salmon with shrimp sauce. Um, we've got pike, so some more unusual fish for us in the modern day. Mm -hmm. um, and then we've got carp, which everything I've heard about carp is that unless you use river carp, it's disgusting. So I assume it's river carp, but this is carps done in the court fashion. What, what does that involve? Um, it pretty much just involves stewing them and serving them with a fancy sauce. That's it. Um, but I do like his style of writing because he uses a lot of like abbreviations and stuff, which gives you this like you can imagine this guy talking. So, for example, he says, "Dish up your fish, add the juice of a lemon, and pour hot upon him." <laughs> He's in a rush, this guy. Yes. Uh, so we've now got our meat dishes, which are quite a lot of the usual roast, served with different kinds of sauces and with different side dishes. And we've got some smaller dishes as well. So, for example, this one uh, is quite interesting. Fricassee of eels with champagne. Okay. <laughs> Which is a combination. I mean, if you think about it, that's just fish and white wine. I mean, yeah, that's true. That's true. It's, just, it's swanky fish and, and white wine. <laughs> I think I always just associate eels with jelly deal. Um... He serves a lot of things in Monsieur Clouet's fashion. Naturally. Naturally. He's obsessed with this guy. <laughs> um, then we've got game birds. We've got stewed hare. We've got woodcock. And now we come to hors d'oeuvres. Oh. -ho. The next 30 dishes or thereabouts are what the French call hors d'oeuvres, dishes of a small size that are generally placed around the outer parts of the table for first course dishes. There's so many recipes in old recipe books. Yeah, there's a lot. I like 20 quid for a recipe book now and it's like, here's 10 <laughs> things to put on pasta. <laughs> a lot of this sounds really nice actually though, so I'd, I'd love to try making a bunch of these this time. Um, and I, I like that it's telling you about the serving as well, because, mm. like, now I'm imagining sort of people daintily picking at the hors d'oeuvres around the outside and then, like, going for the roasts in the middle or something. I mean, I guess if he's a caterer, it's probably an important part of his, his job is, like, when to send things out. Mm. And the carving was done on the table at this point. Mm -hmm. So I presume like while the carving's being done, you can like help yourself to a few morsels. Um, so yeah, he has 
a lot of kind of nice smaller dishes. So, for example, we've got lamb sweetbreads with tops of asparagus. Um, and we've got, this was an interesting one, lamb's ears served with sorrel. Interesting. Which apparently you can easily get from the butchers in London. About a dozen of lamb's ears will make a small dish. I can't say I've ever so, had ear. No. You only get it like, because you get like dried pig's ears in pet shops to give to dogs. Okay. But I've never seen it sold as like people food. Yeah. No, that's a different one. But there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like offal and odd parts in these kinds of dishes, which I suppose makes sense if they're kind of the small bits. I mean, just to make it clear, I'm not judging the serving of offal. Mm -hmm. I am from Lancashire. (laughs) (laughs) I've just never encountered ear. There's a recipe for snipe. Which is a bird, isn't it? I think so. Um, yeah. I'm, yes, it is. A snipe is a bird. Um, I know because it's in a hosier song. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a shrike. Oh, I can't even get my birds right. Big hoser fan. What are you doing, Hazel? <laughs> they both start with an S. Um, anyway, it says to use a lark spit for the purpose of cooking them, which is a utensil I've never heard of until now. I'm guessing just like a small spit so you can put larks on it? Yeah, I guess. Um, and you serve it with purslane, which is a, uh, a wild leaf. Um, so, yeah. Um, so many dishes, so I'm I'm not gonna go to too many more because I know that I am going on a little bit. But um, getting to the sweet dishes, there's a whole section of fritters which sound absolutely delicious. I like a fritter. So I I love a good fritter. Me. Um, (laughs) So one of his dishes is apple fritters a la bavar. So that is using pippin apples and you soak them in brandy, powdered sugar, cinnamon and lemon peel. And then you, yeah, and then you batter them and fry them and like sift some sugar over the top. Mm. Oh my gosh. That is like taking apple fritters to the next level. (laughs) Um, It then says colour them nicely with a salamander and send them up. I don't know what the salamander is in this case. Yeah, the, un- the only time I've encountered salamander in a cooking context was like a tiny little grill that you can put things under to brown the tops, but presumably okay. they wouldn't have had those. Maybe that's what that is? Maybe, maybe the 19th century version? Yeah, that would make sense. Like, put a bit of colour on them with a, with a grill. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, there's a recipe for peach fritters with Rhenish wine, which sounds great. And the one that really interested me was fritters of currant jelly. So... <laughs> How do you make a jam fritter? I, I don't know. So yeah, this is jelly in the sense of it's jam without bits in. 
mm-hmm. um, and it's a bit more sort of solid. But um, yeah, he says to make a pastry, roll it out very thin, and then put your jelly inside. Put another, put like lumps of jelly on it, and then put another shape of pastry over the top. So you're kind of making pastry ravioli. I'm into this. I've come across sweet ravioli before. Okay. <laughs> also, I've found out what an 18th century salamander is. Okay. It's essentially a disc of metal with a handle shaped kind of like the tail of a salamander that you would heat up and then slowly pass over the top of desserts to brown them or um, sort of cook the top an extra bit, especially on sugary things. Oh, right. So it's like the... Or it is just the low-tech version of, of the modern one. The kitchen blowtorch. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> wow. Okay, so, um, yeah, we just go to the desserts. There's a few things like pears in Portuguese fashion, uh, cherries in French paste, macaroons with cream. What is, um, what is Portuguese way of doing pears? Uh, okay, so you boil them just for a short time. And then you stew them in port wine, sugar, cinnamon, and lemon peel. Okay, that's a modern thing as well. Uh, I guess, yeah. It's like poached pears in wine is a thing. Yeah, yeah. So it, I guess, yeah, it's essentially sort of poaching them, but I think this cooks them for a bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there's quite a lot of, you know, international references here. You talk about Parmesan cheese a lot. Um, and. Yeah, that's it's it's a pretty good cookbook generally. Like it, a lot of it sounds quite appetizing. Um, unfortunately, good old Will Verrill um, didn't really see the fruits of his success oh, no. um, because was he too only, humble? Uh, maybe so. Um, I mean, the cookbook was popular, um, and it remains popular. Like the poet. Thomas Gray, who's apparently quite famous, um, was uh, a big, big fan of it. And um, it was popular at the time. And, you know, it did get reissued later on. Um, But I don't, he must not have made much money from it because uh, he went bankrupt two years after it was published. and then he died. <laughs> so. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely too humble, that's what it was. Uh, he, he died of humility. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, the ending is, is a bit of a mystery, really. Um, not exactly sure what went on. Uh, but. Sorry, I thought you meant the ending of the cookbook, like it was some <laughs> Edwin Drood thing, but he didn't finish writing his cookbook. <laughs> How does this recipe end? We'll never know. <laughs> it was a coded reference to uh, 
yeah um <laughs> no it's a bit of an abrupt end to the tale of william beryl mm. uh, however his cookery book did survive and continued to be reprinted and his legacy his culinary legacy lives on um and we're talking about it today so there we go feel like an interesting era of cookbook i think where you kind of you can see the modern stuff coming in but you've still got things like let's just boil this for ages and not see yeah. and then it'll be great <laughs> there's there's some things in there that are obviously super traditional um and it's interesting as well in that it's french cookery but for an english audience so you've still got like your um puddings and your cottages and all sorts mm. um oh there's a recipe for curry in here as well sorry don't know what happened there nice <laughs> yeah including turmeric coriander cumin cayenne pepper um, I mean, that sounds good to me. Yeah. And he doesn't put raisins in it. Yes, good man. <laughs> are you are you anti-raisin? I'm so anti-raisin, especially in curry. I'm going to have to disagree with you there. Oh, no. I like a bit That's of fruit with my spice. That's it. That's the end of the podcast. We're going our separate ways. <laughs> it's Raisin Gate. Um, so, yeah, if you want to suggest an episode or tell us your opinion on fruit and curry, you can email breadandfedpodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at Bread and Thread, where you can find teasers for upcoming episodes, uh, things that we retweet. So I was about to say reblog. Um, <laughs> you don't do that on Twitter, apparently. <laughs> and um, also pictures of things that we talk about on the podcast. And I will put up a picture of the White Heart Inn uh, so you can see the building that the man himself worked in. We are also on the website where you do reblog things, Tumblr. Um, <laughs> is... You can tell which one I use more often. <laughs> I mean, me too, to be fair. I mainly use Twitter for work. Um, but yes, yeah, similar things to what there is on Twitter. Plus, yeah, occasionally reblogging stuff. Um, we get various, we get occasional asks on the Tumblr, which is nice because it's a bit more social than. Twitter, I think. Uh, we are also on YouTube, Bread and Thread again, where you can find YouTube video versions of our audio episodes, just as a format that some people prefer. And we are on Patreon. If you want to help yes. us, help me buy raisins. Um, <laughs> or if you prefer to buy the specific kind of oats to make my great grandmother's parking. Raisins are an unauthorised use of the Patreon fund. That is not what the people pay for. Can I use it to buy steel-cut oats? I'll consent to that. Because I, I do need to make my great-grandmother's parking every year. It's just a thing that I do. Um, so that I mean, is... yeah, that's imperative. 
That is patreon.com slash bread and thread. Uh, and is that it? Have we said the email? Um, we have, yeah. We, we haven't said what yeah. is on the Patreon, which is All right. monthly <laughs> recipes and access to a Discord server. So, Sorry. thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba